So as I'm coming up to a turn, I'm thinking, right, how many degrees do I need to assist? We both need to pull up. We both need to cross at a perpendicular angle. So you're doing a lot of mental gymnastics, working out exact dimensions. And I would always roll out in the wrong place. And then I'm now vulnerable because I'm not in a perfect situation to check the six o'clock of my wingman, who's basically vulnerable to attack from the enemy. And this is what I was failing. And now everything was snowballing. And I was going back to my room every night and I would sit on my bed and we would have full mental dress rehearsal. So I had a cardboard cockpit. I would flick switches. I would make radio calls. I would run through every single bit of the flight that I could possibly think of to practice. My stress bucket was completely overloaded. Um, as, as you touched on, I wasn't sleeping, wasn't eating. I had skin rashes um, and I wasn't talking to anybody because I did not want to expose myself as being weak or vulnerable or not coping. But I certainly wasn't. And it was my course mates that spotted it. And they took me down and we got out into this big parade square and we started cycling around, pretending to be in battle formation. So pretending to be aeroplanes, but on our bikes. And by doing this, they kept saying, man, look at the bigger picture. Look at the bigger picture. And I was going, but how many degrees are we? And they said, don't look at that. Where are we? And suddenly it was like, oh, my gosh, this is so easy. And it's that whole situation, isn't it? I think, Steve, we get so fixated on what we are doing. You keep on doing it in the same way. I mean, it's so like high performance sport. You need somebody different to say, ah, why stop? Stop fixating on the numbers. Start to enjoy it again. Hello there. I hope you're doing well. It's Steve Ingham here and a very warm welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. And I'm a sport and performance scientist and have supported athletes throughout my career and supported and led high performance teams both in sports and business. And in this podcast, I speak to Olympic champions, Formula One drivers, top level sports coaches, researchers breaking new ground in aspects of performance. But we know that performance doesn't just exist in sport. And and that's why we really value having people on this podcast from all all sorts of different backgrounds, the performing arts, musical theatre, ballet, and the military, to name a few other performance industries. So in all walks of life, we can learn from different pursuits, finding a better way to create performance. And I hope you can draw some lessons out of these conversations, maybe just reflect, draw some inspirations, And I hope they can help you along with whatever is in front of you at the moment. This week, I speak to Mandy Hickson. Now, Mandy is a jet fighter pilot, having joined the Royal Air Force in 1994. And Mandy flew the Tornado GR4 on the front line where she operated in hostile environments, including patrolling the no-fly zone over Iraq. If you don't know what the Tornado GR4 is, it's worth looking up on Google. I was fascinated to discuss with Mandy about the physical and mental challenges of of training to become a top fighter pilot. I was particularly interested how pilots like Mandy improve. What are the stages of progression to go from a small craft to faster and then more manoeuvrable and then to train in such a way that you're ready to operate and perform in a combat zone where the stakes are as high as they get? The conversation is so rich with insight where Mandy unpacks a number of situations, scenarios and seriously pressured circumstances with powerful detail. And Mandy shares a number of useful frameworks that helped her to manage the fears and the doubt so that she could take steps forward and rise to the top. She shares her insights with a combination of breeziness, fun, care and a level of wisdom that comes from what I'd say is deep, profound experience. Oh, and there's another detail. It's pretty obvious, um, but in many ways it's irrelevant and relevant as you'll hear us discuss in the conversation. She's a woman um, who got to the top in a male-dominated field. And while that might not matter to some, as a role model to other people aspiring to do something Against the odds, she's an inspiration. Well, Mandy, welcome to the podcast. Um, I'm really excited for this conversation and um, just just that sense of exploring something and understanding something just a little bit more than I don't already know. And I just don't know anything about your world. So I'm fascinated to 
to have this discussion. Um, but ha- first of all, how are you? I'm really good, actually. Thanks, Steve. No, it's a pleasure to be here, apart from putting my back out a little at the weekend. Now I'm on, I'm genuinely normally on great form. <laughs> is that is that a gardening injury or is that a carryover from fighter jet well, <laughs> wear and tear? I, you know what? It was putting a loft in, uh, putting a mattress into the loft injury, which I'm not sure what that constitutes, but um, no, it, was, it was very frustrating. <laughs> and um, yeah. I have had a bad back, actually, to be honest, ever since leaving the Air Force. And I had surgery six years ago where I had artificial disc replacement and they did replace two discs on my spine. It was quite cutting edge surgery and it has been so much better since then. But occasionally I do have these little lapses. Uh, okay, interesting. Is that a common thing or is that something yeah, that you've just, I- just taken its toll on you particularly? I think a lot of, I mean, my husband's a pilot as well, and he also has a bad back in exactly the same place. And I think if you're very tall and a pilot uh, and you've been subjected to pulling G-force for many years, then I think, you know, it, it is a, a common common injury that a lot of us have. Okay. Now, look, I've got I've got a little glimpse into what it's like, has, has been like for you through your career from your book, brilliantly titled An Officer, Not a Gentleman. Um, but the only thing I could spot in there that I have some sort of similarity of experience was where you said that you were flying along Bala, Lake Bala in Snowdonia. Well, I've done that too, but it was on my bike and I had a serious what? tailwind. So that was the only thing I could go, yeah, I've done something similar. I'm not did quite sure. Did you wave sure. people as you went past as well? Yeah, I did. I, did. I, yeah, I, was, I was just, it was a screaming noise of me uh, heading oh, down that, that pass. But, um, fantastic. Could, could you... Um, help me with this in terms of just giving me a bit of an overview of of the sort of craft that you're dealing with what sort of the what sort of jets do you pilot and what are the differences because I, I read through and I'm vaguely familiar with some of the terms I recognize them but could you just just uh, give us a bit of an overview there yeah so the training to become a, a fast jet pilot in the RAF takes you on a just a building block approach and you start by flying something that goes quite slowly um my, myself it was a bulldog aircraft or a firefly it goes at about 120 miles an hour as you progress at each stage of training you go up to the next level I then flew the Takano it went at double the speed so 250 miles an hour and then you fly the Hawk, um, which is what the Red Arrows fly in. So that most people can imagine what that aircraft looks like. And that goes at double the speed again. So we're now up to sort of around about 500 miles an hour. And then when you fly the your um, operational jet, which for myself was the Tornado GR4, which sadly is no longer in service. It went out of service um, a couple of years ago. Um that's going at a similarish speed. So, you, you, I mean, the fastest speed it will go at is about Mach 1, uh, you know, on the paper. But you're normally flying it around about that sort of 400 to 600 miles an hour. Um, it's not that much faster than the Hawk, but of course, it's got a huge amount more capabilities than the Hawk would have been able to because the Hawk's a training aircraft. And is that capabilities in terms of turning, agility, not so much, bizarrely, not so much the turning and agility, because actually the the Hawk as an advanced flying trainer is an incredibly agile aircraft. And it's I always thought it's like the mini metro compared to a Formula One. So once you get into the tornado, suddenly you've got the weapons that are hanging from it. You have, um, you know, de- uh, sort of decoys that go on the aircraft, things in the form of flares and chaff that we wear and put out. We have um, air-to-air missiles that we carry as well for air-to-air defence. So you've got lots of different aspects that you're carrying on that aircraft as well. And when we talk capability, we're talking about what is its potential to do. Uh, okay, fantastic. And and what's the time course of being able to get to that that top end? Um, is it is it something that people can take leaps and bounds towards, or is there a is there a skill set and a physicality that's that takes simple time? It, well, it's, it takes simple time to do the training as well. And um, I mean, it took me about five years from joining the Air Force through to actually qualifying on the front line. Um, that could be quicker, but at the moment there's there's things called holds within the system. So as you're going through, you'll finish one course, you're really excited about starting the next one. And unfortunately, there's a backlog of pilots. And so you end up going into this holding pool, which can often last up to about a year, maybe even 18 months. And that really stagnates you. So when you then are ready to start the next course, you almost have to go back and do what's called a refresher on that previous type, just so that your brain has sped up again to the level you need it to be to go on to the next stage of flying training. Mm, okay. And and um, 
Can you tell me what this, I'm, I'm interested immediately in terms of the physicality of, the, you mentioned G, G-forces and G-suits and so on. Um, can you describe the, the physical demands upon you as a pilot? Because I think that's immediately something that people will connect with and understand that, that at those high velocities, that, that's not for the faint-hearted, but you've also got to be physically strong and capable. You do. And I think when I first joined the Air Force in 1994 and I left 10 years ago now, I don't think physicality was looked at in quite as much detail as it should have done. Um, I think they started to realise that actually we need our pilots to be physically fit. They brought in, um, uh, you know, training regimes as well and fitness testing as well, which was across the board for every member of the armed forces to be doing, which was absolutely essential. And I know that now there are training programs for um, the pilots as well. They have to be at a certain level of fitness because it's really, really important um, when you're fighting G-force in the air and especially flying things like the the newer aircraft like Typhoon and the F-35, you know, there's a lot of G-force that you're sustaining there and you wear... Um, uh, you wear a G-suit and basically what happens is that is connected into the aircraft and it's a bladder system. And so it's a very tight fitting suit. It used to be just on your bottom half. Now it inflates on your arms and your upper half as well. And what it does is it compresses the uh, blood vessels to prevent the blood from pooling. As you're pulling G-force and all your blood rushes to your feet, it tries to stop it from doing that. So it would rush away from your brain and your eyes uh, and where it's important for it to be, you know, into your extremities. And so if you can inflate these bladders around the surface of the skin very, very tightly, it compresses them and it will keep your blood pressure high to where it matters the most. And so I'm imagining something a little bit like your blood pressure cuff, but all over. Um, yes. Yeah. With, with a simple job of, of ensuring the blood does not leave the head. Yes. Uh, is, it, is it as unpleasant as having that, that <laughs> blood pressure cuff, but all yeah. over? Yeah, I remember the first time I ever used one and, um, you know, you've been trialed for them and you've been fitted to them and they're all tightly snug. They look like a pair of like cowboy chaps. Well, the first ones that I was wearing. And I remember thinking, I am so cool. And we got out to this aircraft, we plugged it in and we started to fly and it kicks in at 2G. Um, now at 2G, it's not too much. Of, it's like being a little roller coaster ride sort of thing where your cheeks get a bit heavy. And this thing inflated and it hit me in the stomach. And I remember thinking, oh my God. And basically what happens is it's actually really in two folds. So the first thing is it's, it's inflating. You automatically tense your stomach to brace for the impact of it. And in doing so, you're also stopping the blood from pooling. That simple act of almost that sort of straining against it also helps. So you, it gives you about two to three more times um, a, you know, force of gravity in protection against the G-force. Okay. So if we if we go back some period in time, I presume these G suits weren't around. So you were down to your basic Valsalva manoeuvre and yeah. individual tolerance, were you? Yeah, absolutely. So when I flew to Carnos, um, which was the training aircraft before the Hawk, they didn't have a G suit on there, and it was fascinating because we were pulling sustained four G turns, um, doing what's called maximum rate turns. And when I was flying it, because I'm very tall as well. I mean, there were a lot of other male pilots that were equally as tall as me, if not taller. And we often said, gosh, you know, actually, you have to really fight to keep the blood pressure up. And you do an anti-G straining manoeuvre, which is very amusing to watch. <laughs> if you've ever seen anyone do the centrifugal, you know, test where they are sort of, you basically take a deep breath, force against it push the, the blood pressure back up into your brain and then a very quick intake of breath to replace and replenish that blood supply. And that, if you're doing it for a sustained period of time, can be quite challenging. And occasionally I did used to get what's called grey out, where you see, um, you know, your vision starts to um, tunnel in and you're left with these two very, very small tunnels that you're looking down. And if you cannot get the oxygen up to your brain or, or release the G-force at that point, you will start to lose sight and it's called greying out. And that is the first stage of um, before you would then go into G-lock, which is the uh, loss of consciousness brought on by G-force. <clears throat> okay. So, so shutting down kind of blood flow to, to the eyes and, and the, the, and the brain in that sense. Um, that, that starts me 
off on a line of thought about the sort of interaction between the physical and the mental capabilities or and the 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 skill set of it as as you're starting to feel that pull in are you then also feeling a deterioration in your abilities um you've you've got the the physical going um but in terms of your ability to scan or spot or undertake a precision maneuver how's that maintained yeah and and, i mean basically it's done so that you hopefully don't get to this position so you're taught anti-g straining maneuvers we're given preventative equipment with the g-suit um as well and if you start to see that your vision is going down then you need to release the g-force you know um the problem comes of course when actually there's been problems with g-suits inflating and so john egging one of the red arrows pilots that so sadly lost his life at bournemouth um was down to his g-suit not inflating and he had induced loss of consciousness because of g-force and we do see it so if you're doing a snap maneuver we would say for example in an emergency break so you're coming towards for example a, a mid-air collision or the ground and you pulled you know very uh, substantial amount of g-force you might temporarily lose consciousness um and it's how quickly can you come back from that um so it's something that you obviously don't want to get yourself into that position for and we're taught and given techniques to, to prevent that from happening Okay, so is that simply studying the plane, for example? So pulling out of the manoeuvre so that you have a release of the of yeah. the g-force, and is that yeah. something that's? I'm le- I'm leaping ahead now because this is so fascinating. But how's that managed in in dogfights, for example, whereby you might not just go, oh, I'll just I'll just do a bit of nice steady flying for a little bit because because I need to. Um, yeah, how does how's that managed? I mean, the the dogfighting scenario, which for those that don't know, is air to air combat. So it's it's basically quite gladiatorial in its nature. You're one pilot or a crew pitting their wits against another one, and it's your classic Top Gun that you're seeing. That is very physical. I mean, we would be in training going to do two possibly three trips a day and you would be physically exhausted. I mean, you feel like you've been beaten up, not just by the G-suit, but by constant pulling of G-force and then the planning and the thinking um, and, you know, the mental acuity that is needed for that. They were exhausting periods of flying training and um, advanced flying training is, is really intense at the best of times, but that air combat phase was particularly tough. And, and how do you train for that? Uh, in terms of the physical training, do you, do you do specific out of plane training? You know, we, 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 I'm not sure that's a term. Sorry, Mandy. Um, but I, so um, non pool training would be the equivalent for swimmers. Um, that, that sort of thing. It's just about maintaining a good physical fitness. Um, and again, it was not something that was really focused on bizarrely when we were going through flying training, they said, Oh, stay fit. But it wasn't looked at like it is now. It's a very different scenario now whereby people really are, you know, at the peak of their physical fitness and they have to be because, you know, it's like in everything, isn't it? If you think back to sport, you know, 20 years ago, it's not that we didn't have that same level of what is high performance sport? What does it need? Let's talk mindset, diet, everything that goes with it now. We wouldn't have that huge team around us. Um, And I think that's the same for flying it has advanced enormously. And so that gets me thinking about sort of the prerequisites and whether they're evolving in itself. Are there a few non-negotiables still that, that makes a good fighter pilot? It sounds as though, so in the parallel with sport, for example, we, what we have seen is an evolution of the kind of, almost the genetics that are required to win. And whereas before, it was just off the scale gene freaks in the nicest possible way yeah. that that would succeed and a good training program. And now you can probably lower the level of genetic requirement, but through systematic support and uh, individualization, you need this, you need that. You can get them there. You can get them to that kind of winning level. Are there a few requisites that are still, still um, essential? Do you not think on that, Steve, though, the mindset of the individual is still paramount? So, yes, you can perhaps lower that bar. But I mean, I know that when I've listened to or I've spoken to high performance athletes, it's when you hear about that 
dogged determination. They are single-minded in their pursuit of their goals. And I think really when you look at pilots, that's probably a similar thing as well. They have decided very early on in their careers that they want to do this job and they will go to, you know, the nth degree to achieve that. Um, And, you know, once you when you say what are the basic requirements, I mean, I can see it actually with youngsters when I was um, I was a volunteer and I used to fly air cadets. You know, they're coming in at 13 to 18 year olds and they can, you're taking them up in an air experience flight, 30 minutes in a small propeller airplane. You could spot the people that would make good pilots almost on their first trip because they have this thing called situational awareness whereby they they sense where they are in the bigger picture And it's something inherent in you. One of my sons has it. My other son doesn't. It's fascinating. Um, And it's not linked in any way to intelligence. Um, It really is not. Um, It's just this inherent, we we would say someone has a good set of hands. They feel there's a natural, you know, identity and that they can almost they feel at one with the aircraft and it's fa- it's fascinating i've only met very few natural pilots in my in my life because you can do a lot of training to enable yourself to be at a higher standard but the ones that i have met you think wow you will be a brilliant pilot mm. so you mentioned bigger picture and i read that in the book i'm trying to connect with the the section that you wrote about it i think it was where you were talking about teamwork and and your confidence was slipping Uh, You had this weight of expectation. There was a sense of you you weren't sleeping very well. Yeah. You weren't eating very well, which I can't imagine is that handy for (laughs) handling one of those. But there was a sense of getting your mojo back. And you mentioned bigger picture in there around. So so can you can you unpack that a little bit? That that sense of, okay, you're entering some sort of flow state of some sort. But there, there was this idea of spatial connection with your environment. It's really, really important. So situational awareness when you're flying is absolutely the key. It's seeing where are you within not just the aircraft, but in, you know, time and space. But it's also a projection of what will be happening in the immediate future. So we use this thing called nutter, notice it, understand and think ahead. So when we are feeling a cognitive overload, one of the first of our senses that tends to go is always our hearing. And you will see that all the time, I'm sure, in high performance sports, you know, whereby when someone's getting maxed out, they're not they're not hearing what's going on. And as an instructor, you see that happening too. Um, you'll see people missing radio calls and you think, oh, they're at cognitive overload. But if we're not noticing things, then you can't understand the implications of that and you certainly can't project ahead. So this nutter, notice, understand and think ahead. And it's actually a really really handy technique because if you can utilize periods of lower workload and you're not you know in a, in a demanding low level flying environment when you're not about to do a target run to hit a target within five seconds you've utilized the planning time for example the time when you're on the ground when you are in that moment where you think about every what if scenario you consider all the threats any potential errors that you could make Um, You try to get so ahead of the game so that when you're now in this period of of high workload, you are going back to your basics of everything that you've already planned for. So when the crisis happens or the emergency happens or something unusual happens, you've already thought about it. That's really, really powerful. And that's really powerful for anybody in any walk of life at all. Um, So, you know, as they say, you know, plan to fail, fail to plan and all those good things, those great analogies. Um, but for myself in that situation, I I was losing the bigger picture. We were doing tactical low flying. Um, we were going out as a pair of aircraft. It was the very final stages of my fast jet training. And we were hitting targets in the, in the field. We would say it was in Wales within five seconds. Now, at the time, technology was not as advanced as it is. We had no moving map, no head-up display. We literally had a paper map, a stopwatch, and a compass. You're with a wingman. You're trying to stick three quarters of a mile apart at all times. There's an enemy, your instructor. They're trying to get behind you to simulate shooting you down with a missile. And so you're trying to evade that threat whilst hitting targets and managing everything. Now, this is a scenario where they are trying to overload you. Once you get to the front line and you're then flying your operational jet, like the Tornado or the Harrier for ourselves, well, then you've got tools on that aircraft that will help you. Now, at this point, they're trying to 
let's not say break you, but they want to get you to maximum capacity because they say, have you got the ability to cope under pressure? Now, I was basically getting up to these turns. They're called battle turns. And you both have to plan ahead and you have to basically help your wingman out. So as you're coming up to a turn, you can't just both turn left because now you're in a stream behind each other. So as I'm coming up to a turn, I'm thinking, right, how many degrees do I need to assist? We both need to pull up. We both need to cross at a perpendicular angle. So you're doing a lot of mental gymnastics, working out exact dimensions. And I would always roll out in the wrong place. And then I'm now vulnerable because I'm not in a perfect situation to check the six o'clock of my wingman, who's basically vulnerable to attack from the enemy. And this is what I was failing. And now everything was snowballing. And I was going back to my room every night and I would sit on my bed and we would have full mental dress rehearsal. So I had a cardboard cockpit, I would flick switches, I would make radio calls. I would run through every single bit of the flight that I could possibly think of to practice. My stress bucket was completely overloaded. Um, as, as you touched on, I wasn't sleeping, wasn't eating. I had skin rashes um, and I wasn't talking to anybody because I did not want to expose myself as being weak or vulnerable or not coping. But I certainly wasn't. And it was my course mates that spotted it. And they took me down and we got out into this big parade square and we started cycling around, pretending to be in battle formation. So pretending to be aeroplanes, but on our bikes. And by doing this, they kept saying, man's look at the bigger picture, look at the bigger picture. And I was going, but how many degrees are we? And they said, don't look at that. Where are we? And suddenly it was like, oh my gosh, this is so easy. And it's that whole situation, isn't it? Where I think, Steve, we get so fixated on what we are doing. You keep on doing it in the same way. I mean, it's so like high-performance sport. You need somebody different to say, ah, why stop Stop fixating on the numbers? Start to enjoy it again. And you go, oh, and suddenly you see performance improve for somebody. And it's and they go, gosh, that wouldn't, you wouldn't have thought that would work. And actually for myself, I flew the next day. It went really well. I passed the flight. I gained my RAF wings. Um, so it considered a good thing at this point after four years of training. And, and really, it was my my wingmen, my course mates that got me through by by looking at it in a very different perspective. Oh, that's fast. That is just fascinating. So the very specifically there, it was I was getting your head up and uh, and not look. So just look at the, at the bike, which I can relate to, is not just thinking about the where the wheel is, but where you are in the in the environment um yeah. and i suppose that then means that some of the controls are just taking care of themselves yeah absolutely because i think up to that point i'd been i've been i've been trying to do it by the numbers for example oh i'm heading along on a heading of 090 and i need to be turning through 63 degrees to da, da, da. and i was adding all these and actually if you just looked at it and you saw it and you watched two jets pull up and you watched, you can see you cross at a perpendicular angle and you, you can look at them where they're turning out and then you can turn in and you're going, oh my gosh, I'm not even looking at the numbers. I'm, I'm, my head is out the cockpit. Now, surely that's a better thing. Um, I mean, there's a technique as well where people used to say, oh, you're over map reading and it sounds madness. So you're doing navigation skills. You're learning these new skills. You've got this map. You've planned this map in intricate detail with degrees where is the wind from what will be my heading correction to take into account of wind what's my next turning point and you've got all this planned on a map and then you get airborne and you are so fixated on this map that you stop looking outside as much and you keep on thinking oh must look at my map must look at my map and my instructor was this very experienced guy called the shoe Dick Schuster, and he was as old and bold <laughs> as they came. And I was about to go off on my final thing. He said, Mandy, I noticed in your notes you've been over map reading. And I said, oh, I do have a tendency. He said, just give me a map, will you? And it was literally minutes before we got airborne. And I spent hours planning this map. It was beautiful. It was a work of art, quite frankly. And he took it and he basically used this huge marker and he had this white piece of paper and he just wrote down a heading. And then what my turning point was, church, heading, you know, wood. And then he gave me this piece of paperback. He kept the map. And I'm now going, I can't do it with this. He said, it'll stop you over map reading. I was like, ah! And of course, there was nothing to look at. So I'm now looking out the window again. And I was like, so again, forcing you to see a bigger picture. Fantastic. A bit like... um like taking the, the the blinkers off for a horse in that, yeah in that sense. yeah yeah absolutely the mighty shoe he knew well the mighty shoe what a nickname um 
Okay, there's a couple of other little concepts in there that, that I'd love to pick up on. Nutter is just the best acronym ever in the world uh, because it would it probably just alludes to maybe what you've got to have a little bit of a screw loose. To, yeah. but, but it also, so notice, understand, uh, think ahead. You you can't be doing those in as a process of, okay, I'll need to notice now. Um, okay, here I go. I'm going to make sure I understand this. It almost speaks to a sense of mastery and automaticity of the skills that you're required to do the the movements. And for I guess for for everyday folk, that would be learning to drive, where it feels like right. Think about the pedal. Think about the indicators, and then suddenly it becomes automatic. And then you can notice things. Yeah. Is there a certain level where that that acronym becomes particularly pertinent for you to be feeling the 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 sensory inputs without even thinking about it? Yes and no. So it's used across the whole of aviation now actually. So British Airways use it, you know, nutter. So when something happens, um for example a, a light bulb could go on and they go, "Oh, never mind it's something insignificant but actually because they've noticed it and they go hold on a minute we're going on a three-day flight down to South Africa will we have the um, engineering support down there so they've noticed it they're understanding the implications of it and they're projecting ahead to say actually yes it's going to cause an inconvenience to our passengers at this moment but if we turn back get this sorted it won't have a knock-on effect in consequences down the route. So there's little things like that. So we try to do it all the time, this nutter. Put it into a driving scenario. It's like listening to the radio and hearing that there's an incident on the motorway up ahead. Now, if you haven't been hearing that, you're driving along in your own little world and you're listening to music and you're happy, happy and see all the brake lights going on and it's it's an emergency. It's a slam my brakes on. But if you noticed it because you'd heard the radio, You've understood the implications of where it's happening. So as soon as a brake light goes on, you're you're prepared, you're ready because you're seeing the bigger picture. So it's always about trying to force people to get out of their little world they're in and actually expand their knowledge to the bigger picture. Mm, Fascinating. Okay, that's interesting from a procedural point of view. And you mentioned that you're um, and I know you're facilitating team developments, too, in terms of what if scenarios, debriefing managing threats and, and preparing. That sounds like a, a very transferable process that, that a lot of people could apply. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the debrief thing is just, it's amazing how many businesses or organisations I talk to and, and, you know, and I say, and obviously something that we do in aviation is we debrief after every single flight, training, operational, we sit and it's just part of the process, you know. Um, and when we sort of, it's almost like a golfer hitting a ball off into the dark and getting no feedback as to where it's gone. You wouldn't do it, would you? You need feedback to improve performance. And so you say to businesses, do you debrief? And they go, oh, yes, we call it a post-mortem. You go, no, it shouldn't be a negative. It shouldn't always just be, you know, uh, wrapped around that thought of something's gone badly and therefore we need to debrief it. It's almost like oh, there was something that really that was really well handled within our corporation or within our business. Let's debrief that and learn and share the best practice to the rest of the team. But we always sort of, I, I use this debrief funnel. It's like, what happened? What were the facts? Which is non-negotiable because that's not up for debate because they are facts. Why did it happen? What's the cause? But you're trying to elicit three or four key elements to be how, how can we be better? What's the cure? And if you've taken those three or four key elements from those fact line, from the timeline, for example, and you break them down and break them down through really good facilitated questioning, why, how, when, who, you know, with no blame involved at all, because you remove emotion from it. And as soon as you feel yourself going, what, who did that? Then you take yourself back because it's not about who did something, it's about why. And so you get to this this root cause and then you can actually learn from it. And it's just so powerful. And it's part of pilots every single day routine. Never have I done a flight without debriefing it. I've got to observe that it's perhaps the most common anomaly of talking to businesses and transferring high performance concepts that when when you mentioned debrief, it tends to be we had a quick chat after that really important pitch meeting uh, on the way to the airport. Yeah, no, that didn't sound like a debrief to me. And then it appears as though you're making the same mistakes. Yeah. Um, 
And yeah, that, that does seem like, um, but, but maybe we're just hardwired to jump from one thing to the next, perhaps rather than thinking methodically about, about what gain can we create time after time. Um, but we, we stole that from the talking to you guys in the military. About, yeah, absolutely. You know. I mean, why would you not debrief? People always say, oh, it's because we don't have time. It's like, this is crazy. By not creating yeah. the time, you're never learning. And therefore, you're just in this downward spiral. So you see the, the, the businesses that are doing the best, the ones that make the time. You know, even if we, it's something a really quick one, what went well, what went badly, what do we need to do more of? You know, really quickly. Um, there was this other thing that we started to do as well, latterly in my career, and it was um, feedback with a boost. And I loved it. It was sort of you grab someone and it's not in the formal debriefing, but I would say, oh, Steve, can I just grab you for a quick boost? What I've got to say is balanced, observed, objective, specific and timely. And it's really positive because just by the sheer word boost, you think, oh, they're going to help me. And it's that whole feedback is a gift. It's not a gift. People hate it. As soon as you say, can I give you some feedback? People go, oh, no, it's going to be awful. Your heart falls and drops. But if you say, can I just give you a quick boost? There's just a couple of points I think would mean basically take you to the next level of performance. That seems really positive. And so we started to do that more and more as well. And that worked really well. Um, I love that. That's great. Great reframing. Can I pick up another? So I'm still on um your previous uh discussion about um i just want to pick up on this idea of overload um you know we we again picked up this this phrase in high performance sport about hard training easy combat yeah. or easy training hard combat um but specifically that's a life or death situation you do that f- to protect yourself it sounded as though there was um almost a bit of a mountain to climb where you had to s- overcome that overload in order to pass the pass the various tests you put in front of but ultimately that was preparing you for for combat which is you say you've got the the full game plan in place there um in terms of in terms of preparing you for that uh overload period what's the what's the process of going through that because handling that pressure is critical in terms of developing that skill set Yeah, it is. And I think that's why they make advanced flying training so difficult. Um, I mean, we did lose quite a few people from the courses, um, you know, at each of the stages as well. So when I got to fly the tornado, I almost thought, oh, it's quite easy in comparison because I've got someone now sitting in the back seat because we had a navigator and they became then known as a weapon systems operator. So you've now you're part of a team now. And actually, that's not an instructor in the back that's trying to catch you out to overload you. They are there to assist for you to work well as a team together. And that was quite exciting. And then we also had a head up display, which suddenly I've got a lot of green writing, which is telling me all the information I need in front of me. I'm not looking down at a load of instruments. I've also now got a moving map, which is telling me where I am in the world. So I'm not having to know and keep this huge amounts of situational awareness going. So when you've got to fly the tornado or your frontline jet, it was much easier in many ways than advanced flying training. But of course, now you're going to take that jet. You've, you've learned how to fly it. Then you learn how to fight it. And that's when we would go on exercises, for example, to America. We did an, a huge exercise called Red Flag, which is uh, in the Arizona desert. And it was replicating the theatre of war that we were in at the time in Iraq. And, you know, the philosophy out there is you're going to train harder than you will ever have to fight for real. And that's exactly it. So again, giving you more and more complex scenarios so that you're working as a team, um, you know, working through all the issues, the problems, the planning stages to come together with this amazing plan. Um, And then you get everyone and they would even throw extra scenarios of things happening. For example, they'd simulate someone had been shot down and you were suddenly having to retask to become an on-scene commander to take control with a downed air crew. And again, they were just giving you scenarios that when you then were um, flying in Iraq um, in the different operations and we were operating in, you've already practiced stuff that's probably harder than that. So although you've now got the adrenaline of being in a war zone with people actually on the ground trying to shoot at you to kill you, you have, you're still in your environment that you have practiced and practiced and practiced. So what can be automatic is automatic. And that's that whole 
when I suppose that goes back to your point there of when does nutter become an autonomous process? It's in that phase where really we've we've tried to get the flying as becoming as automatic as we can so that our brain has the capacity to deal with complex issues outside of that. Mm. Fantastic. And what's the, um, what is the difference then between that overloaded training, uh, training harder than you'll ever have to experience in combat, but then what is it like in combat? How do you then, I guess, reconcile that I've, I've got skills, I've got competency, but, but now this is real. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, really, because the first time I found myself in a war zone, which was um, Operation Telic at the time, which was um, flying over Iraq from um, Ali al-Salem in Kuwait, um, my first ever mission, I walked in and most people sort of, we were doing a lot of reconnaissance at the time, um, you were taking photos. And then I walked into the, to the briefing room, they said, OK, today's mission is a bombing mission. I was like, gosh, I wasn't expecting that, <laughs> you know, um, which sounds crazy but there wasn't we weren't doing much of that at the time we were mainly doing reconnaissance trips and so again there's one fantastic thing that you have which is you're put to often fly with someone who's a very senior navigator so they would try to twin up a junior pilot or a junior navigator with a serious um experienced navigator or pilot the other way around and so you'd often find the boss for example if he was a navigator would fly with the, the junior pilot so you have a really great mix and it means that you're almost got a mentor sitting on your shoulder, um, um, which is really powerful on your experience and your learning. Um, so they're constantly guiding you to enable you as a team to make better quality decisions. Um, so you're not alone in the aircraft. You're also in a formation um, and you're going to be briefing. You're planning it together. You're briefing it together. You're going through all the what-if scenarios together. What happens if you lose an engine here, Mandy? What happens there? What happens if the navigation kit's not spot on? So you're, again, thinking outside of the norm so that if that did happen, you've already got a plan in your mind. Um, so that gives you that capacity as well. I love that. And and um, I'm just, again, drawing parallels back to my world of sport in terms of supporting a a junior athlete, if you've got a senior coach who's able to say, it's going to be okay, it's going to be fine, don't worry, trust me, Um, that calms. But when uh, an athlete becomes uh, a medalist, senior, they they become almost the the guide. They become solely responsible and the coach is there almost as just another pair of ears just to bounce the ideas off as opposed to instructional early in career perhaps that turns into much more of a empowering um you're in charge now yeah and actually something that the military do do really really well well certainly in the air force and what i saw anyway was um you would be on a mission and even if you're at a relatively early stage of your career you were tasked to lead that formation um and it could be on a relatively easy say an average mission over the border if that mission then became way more complex for example you were shot at by a surface to air missile or something went wrong the senior people in your formation don't leap in and take control you know you are number one number some somebody else is number two three and four you don't suddenly all change positions and say, oh, number four, you've got way more experience. You take over the leap. You don't do that. So even if you're the most junior person, you will continue to lead, even though the complexity is now through the roof. And in doing so, you get a much more empowered workforce because you're also ensuring that people are accountable in their own decisions from an early stage of their career, that they're pushing themselves to their own capability limits, that you're giving them the tools because they've got that support network of a crew who are working really well together to enable high level quality decisions to be made. And also we introduce concepts like a decision-making model, which is called DODAR, again, used across the airline world where we diagnose a problem. We share that with the team and we don't, as the leader say, this is what I think the problem is. You say, what do you see the problem is? And your team come back and tell you. So the diagnosis is there's no contamination of your own ideas You then ask the team for options. What would you do? That's not showing um, weakness or vulnerability. That is showing incredible leadership because you want to get the input from your team. But once you have the input on that option stage, 
the options have been generated. You as the leader compile all of that information. You make the decision. So it's not a collaborative decision-making process. It's option generation that's leading to the leader making the decision. You then assign the tasks and you review it. Or I like to say for the R is give me a reason not to, you know, almost question, you know, I think Richard Branson has it. He has these no men because he says yes to everything. He says, give me a reason not to do this. And then you normally go, well, there's lots of reasons. Actually, we shouldn't. Um, so actually, rather than just getting sucked into that whole sunk cost fallacy of I've invested time and effort making this decision, now I'm just going to go through it because, because I have made that decision. Give me a reason not to. And actually, by doing that, it's a really empowering decision-making model to involve everybody in it, but with the accountability still sitting in the leadership um, structure. But going through that process, as you say, you're not showing weakness as a leader. You're, you're specifically empowering the workforce, aren't you? You're, yeah. It's not a case of command and control in, in the sense of, um, look, I, I'm the font of all knowledge. I'll take, I'll bear all the res, the brunt of responsibility by making a decision based on my thoughts. Let's let's create this together. And as you mentioned, kind of going into that combat situation, there's the preparation, there's the over over uh, skilling up and, and and developing your your skills. But you also mentioned we're in this together. <laughs> we yeah. we we you know, I guess when things get hot you're at least going to be able to say, I've got the backing of, of my buddies here. Yeah, and and all of their experience. And, mm. you know, I certainly had that many times when I was over Iraq where something would happen and I think, my goodness, <gasps> you know, I, I mean, there was, of course, a level of imposter syndrome. I think most people do have that to some degree. And I know it's something we talk about a lot at the moment with regards to mental health as well. And, you know, and I did have imposter syndrome. I used to think, oh my goodness, I can't believe, you know, Mandy from Manchester is up here making decisions. Um, but ultimately you've got the backing of your wingmen. You know, it's a really powerful tool. You know, they're on your side. Hmm. Now I haven't mentioned anything to do with the fact that you're a woman. I don't know whether I should, I, I should raise it. Do you know what I mean? I, just, but, I wonder if anyone noticed. Yeah, I think... I think I should probably, the, the, at least the excuse is the name of your book. So an officer, not a gentleman, very specifically pointing out, I'm not one of those. Um, and I suppose that, you know, we've just had this conversation that's, that's irrespective of, of your gender. But should we talk about that? Is that important it's from a historical, from a physical, from a role modelling point of view? Yes and no. So really refreshing that we haven't talked about it because I think so often I'll be honest I do a few odd podcasts here and there it's one of the things that it's like you're a woman in a man's world or was also a fast jet pilot and all we have been talking about is being a fast jet pilot which is brilliant and you know it is nice to be there um as a role model I'll be honest I you know often get asked about let's say legacy is legacy important and I think not my own personal legacy but legacy that actually we have enabled you know, ourselves for those first few of us that were female fast jet pilots. Um, so Joe Salter was the first uh, for the tornado. I came through as about the second. We had Mitch Tompkins, who was the first Harrier female Harrier pilot. We had Kirsty Murphy, who was the first female Red Arrows pilot. We're a generation of sort of first, seconds, thirds. And I think we're just creating role models for our younger generation because there's a lovely quote from one of the first female astronauts who said, you can't be what you can't see. And it's true. You know, you need people to sort of go, actually, there are women doing it. Why shouldn't I? Um, and it's less of an issue, I think, for our youngsters that are coming through now. Well, I thought it was until I wrote my book and I had not really been massively up on social media hugely. It wasn't an important part for me um, before the book, actually. But I thought I'd better just get out there on Instagram and a bit more on Twitter. I received daily comments from youngsters saying, I love your book. This has given me the re it's made me remember why I wanted to do this. It's made me realize I can do this. Um, you know, and, and you think fantastic. Great. Because we do need people to, that we can look up to and aspire to be like, um, and yeah. And I, I find it really refreshing actually, Steve, that you haven't sort of talked about it because it wasn't, it wasn't a massive issue for me. And I know that sounds crazy, when you look back and think, but you were the only woman on any course you went through and you were the only woman on the squadron. Why wasn't it an issue? I think I became fairly thick skinned about it. I had an incredible band of brothers that I went through flying training with. 
they were my best friends. You know, the fact I was a woman, it wasn't an issue. Um, I was loud. I was, you know, huge extrovert. I'm six foot tall. I'm never going to be the grey person. You know, I did stand out, but I stood out for being Mandy, not just for being a woman. Um, and I think, you know, I'm, and I'm proud of who I am and who, and what I achieved as well. Um, there were times when it was difficult. I cannot lie. You know, there were times when I questioned, had I made the right decision, um, which was a real shame. And it was often down to to individuals that I just think were in a bad place themselves, as so often is the case. Um but overall, I've had I had an incredible um, career in the Air Force and, you know, I would recommend it to anybody. And if my legacy has been that it's encouraged more women to go into it, well, then, yeah, I'm very proud of that legacy. Yeah, and I think that's my part of my motivation is to acknowledge that should we even recognise it. But I, I was motivated by a number of um, female leaders that I've encouraged or um supported who have said things like i've never had somebody to look up to and introducing them to somebody that they can means oh i can now see a role model that i want to be like that's like me and um and specifically after we i spoke to tess morris patterson who's training to be an astronaut for the podcast um we had so much response in the same way of, well, it's it's not necessarily I want to be an astronaut, but <laughs> I'd like yeah. to be something. I'd like to do something. And it wasn't just from girls. It wasn't just from women. It was from guys, too, who turned around and said, actually, that sense of why not me? Why yeah. Why can't I do this? If I have to go the extra mile, if I have to prove people wrong, then I've got now somebody that I can look to to say, that's somebody that's done that yeah absolutely Stephen. and and it's fascinating because my mum always said if it's going to be someone why shouldn't it be you and I thought and it sort of sounds like it's like a double negative almost but it's it really rang true to me of well actually why shouldn't it be me I'm you know I've done well at school I've worked hard I've held leadership positions throughout the whole of my university you know I was in a good position to go in and 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 I'd aspire to do this. And it was a dream that I, I was really passionate about. Um, I mean, the big stumbling point for myself was when I failed all of the aptitude tests to be a pilot. And that did come as a huge blow. But again, not to be deterred. And that has acted as a really wonderful, um, again, role modelling of behaviour around determination for many young people. And again, not just girls at all. Loads of young guys are contacting me going, oh my gosh, thank you, Mandy. You know, you've made me realise that I can achieve my goals still. Mm. Um, I mean, an example would be my husband as well, severely dyslexic, left school. Um, in fact, we were talking about it this morning. He said, "I my last report said, never come back, never show your face at this school again. It was to an incredibly elite private school at the time. Um, you know, and he was bullied, severely dyslexic and left with nothing. And he ended up as now one of the most qualified airline pilots. You know, he has every training qualification, every certificate he's got it, you know. And he has been a very, very talented aviator for the whole of his career. But, you know, because he was so dyslexic, he believed he was thick. He believed that he was stupid. And he has taken years and years to overcome that and to find a way around it and to believe that he is good enough and not just good enough, actually he sees things differently. So again, it's not about putting people in parcels and packages and saying you don't fit into this mould. You know, we need that cognitive diversity that comes from people thinking differently. Mm, great story. I feel like I got to know Craig through the book. It's, um, <laughs> it, was, it was that dynamic and that, that the ups and downs, but also that personal reflections, the honesty. Um, you also meant you also say bugger eighteen times. I I looked up how many times. <laughs> I, I got pit- because I was trying not to be too rude, and I thought bugger was the one thing that was a little bit rude, but not too rude. <laughs> it has that has that personal sense, which is great. Every now and again, it's just bugger. Um, what what I know you're working in facilitating groups. Have you done any work in sport? And I think there's so much that people could learn from 
from your experiences? Yeah, I'm just getting into it, actually. Bizarrely, I spoke to Bath Rugby Club just before their uh, European semi-final the other night. Um, so I did a session with them. And yeah, and, and I'd love to do some more work in sport. It was interesting, actually, because I climbed up Kilimanjaro about um, 18 months ago now. And we went to the Elite Athlete Centre in Loughborough. <clears throat> and we used the altitude rooms. It was their first time they'd been used and they used us as a package. And it was fantastic. And when I was there, I thought, oh, there was, I was chatting to quite a few different athletes that were around as well. And I just thought, oh, the parallels are enormous. Uh, it's an area I would certainly love to get more into, actually. And but, but on that aspect, I know you're working and facilitating sort of a, businesses as such. But what what is it you're... Um, I suppose the, I'm trying to find the right question in terms of, you know, is there a nugget that, that you're finding? We've mentioned debrief. Is there a nugget that you're finding that, that's really sticking and really translatable? Yeah, I think the area of culture, really. When you, when you look at what aviation have done with regards to culture in the last, let's say, 25 years or something, it is phenomenal. We went, and I use aviation as an industry here. We're not talking RAF. We're talking the whole of of aviation we went from a blame culture whereby we never ever learned from mistakes to having a really open and honest reporting culture and it was done in a few different ways actually one was from recognizing that airplanes were crashing with a an, an alarming regularity and it was always down to human error well 75 percent of the time it was down to human error and yet we weren't learning from the mistakes and so they realized that for every it's this pyramid basically for every one incident that you have, which for us is often a crash with a huge loss of life. There will be 30 minor incidents, which, you know, had to be reported on, but beneath your waterline, that classic iceberg, you have 300 near misses. Now 300 times when exactly the same set of circumstances happened, but they got away with it. And if you have a blame culture, you never learn what the 300 are because they're always just capped and people go, oh, got away with that. Don't need to tell anyone. They realised this was the issue. And so they realised they didn't want to just constantly be proactive, always reacting to this one and working down. They wanted to find out what were their 300. And so I said about this programme called What's Your 300 Events? And I was working with the police and we started the session by saying, who here has made a mistake? Silence. 300 policemen and and women, all silent. And then we started to talk about cultural change and really, and you know, and how exciting it is to learn from our mistakes. I said, who's had a brilliant 300 event they want to share? Oh, the arms were shooting up because suddenly they were thinking of it as a great opportunity to share an incident, not I'd made a mistake. This is such a simple twist again to the way our brains are working that we're now part of the solution not the problem if we make a mistake we feel like it's a problem if we are creating data and knowledge to enable us to make better quality decisions to enable things not to happen in the future then we're feeling we're solution-based and it's so we want to be part of that and so they've set about this thing called the just culture and it's a statement where they say A just culture recognises that competent professionals will make mistakes. It also recognises that those very same professionals will develop unhealthy norms in the form of shortcuts, routine rule violations, but there is zero tolerance for recklessness. So there's a line in the sand. If you are reckless or there is sabotage, there will be punitive action. But anything to the left of that, I don't care what it is. We want to know about it. If you found yourself deviating from from a procedure, if you found yourself taking a shortcut, if you made an error, just tell us about it because we want to learn. And it's the report started flooding in and it changed the mindset. Now, if businesses, if organisations, if sports groups can do this and you take away that blame completely of someone has done something on the sports pitch and rather than the eye roll of, oh, he missed or she missed or... Rather than that, the person knows they've messed up. They know they made an error. But it's almost like that straight back into, right, come on then, guys. That's happened. Let's move on. Almost let's take that and be excited about it to ensure that we don't, it doesn't happen again. Rather than going back to the changing room and saying, well, that was rubbish. That, you know, it's not about that, is it? It's constantly about getting the right mindset. And I think we've worked so hard on that in aviation. 
in 2017, we did not have one loss of life through to an, through an aviation accident. That is phenomenal because you looked at how many aircraft were flying. I think it was one incident in 17.8 million departures. Now, that is unheard of as a safety record. You know, people are dying more regularly on roads and things. Um, so how did they do that? And it's about looking at culture, cultural change. And so that has been one of the most powerful nuggets, I think, that when businesses come to me and we say, let's really get down to, do you have a blame culture? But no, no, no. Well, until you start picking it and then the individual starts saying, well, actually, I never really tell people if I mess up, you know. So it's fascinating. I, I love the fact you picked that out. It's one of the, the, the things that you can spot so quickly. It's one of the things that, that corrodes teams so aggressively, um, but is so often entrenched. I think yeah. raising, I, I mean, I, I raise it in my talk specifically around blame. As soon as you get the finger pointing after a games, uh, it wasn't my fault. That's another version of blame, which is not yeah. just the finger pointing. It was your fault. It wasn't my fault. Well, it was everyone else's fault. And it, it is such a simple action that when people recognize that that is taking teams down, then um, that's the first base. I think, as you as you allude to, there are a lot of tentacles, a lot of training, a lot of communication development that that underpin that. But oh, I love that. I love that lesson. That's incredible. Mandy, what a joy to talk to you. Fantastic, fascinating, absolutely um, incredible. The, the the insights that you've you've brought, the the frameworks. I loved the nutters and the the dodars and the. Was there anyone else? There was, there's, a, there's a couple oh, in there. I just love my acronyms. <laughs> Nutters and Dodars is enough for anyone enough. for it. But, <laughs> but congratulations, everything you've achieved. Thank you for being that role model and and communicating what you've learned. So thank you much, so much for joining us. Thanks, Steve. Honestly, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm sure we could talk for hours. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mandy. Give her a follow on Twitter at Mandy Hickson. Well, look her up on her website, hicksonlimited.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ingham underscore Steve and the team at support underscore champs. And we're on LinkedIn and Instagram. Give us a follow on there too. And if you're enjoying the podcast, it'd be amazing if you get a chance to just give us a, an honest review on iTunes. It really helps the podcast, helps the podcast get in front of other people that might enjoy it as well.